We'll start in Romans 15, verse 23, and we're going to go all the way to 1616. 1523, 1616. Uh, quite a bit here. There's going to be a lot of names that I'm going to stumble through. Uh, please don't let it be a distraction. I apologize ahead of time. I'll do my best. Romans 15, 23 through 1616. Please follow along with me. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service of them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be accepted, uh, acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancretia, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron for many of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apennitus, who has the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are all well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Paris, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Ansocrates, Philogon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogos, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. All right, let me pray. We need the Lord's grace and help for us tonight. Let me pray. Lord God, we ask indeed for your help as we approach your word. Lord, we ask that you would clear distractions from our minds. We ask that we would humbly... Sit under your word and submit to your word. We ask that your spirit would work through us. Lord, even strengthen me. I pray I would not get in the way of your truth and your message. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified as we look to your word and seek to worship you. 
We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. There are many people in, in my life over the years uh, who have been great examples to me, who have had, uh, who've been a great influence to me, who have been a great blessing to me. And I can list names and names of a lot of different people and tell you all the different ways uh, in which they've had an impact on my life. But one of the most, I think, common factors in most of these people, if not all these people, is that they are all servants of God. And I can tell you that these servants of God have been a great example. They have been a great influence. They have been a great blessing to me in many different ways. In fact, some of those people and those servants of God who have been an example and an influence and blessing to me are the people here in this room right now. I will tell you that our, our staffers, our servants, I'm, I'm going to brag about them because it's them, it's not me. And they won't brag about themselves. But I'll tell you that our, our staffers, there, there are many of them who are a great example to me. And they have been a huge blessing to me in, in many ways. Because I see their heart for the Lord. And I see their hunger to serve Him. And just watching that and seeing that as an example to me, it's a joy and it's a blessing to watch them serve. And for me to even learn from that. And I think we can do a similar thing even here in this passage in Romans. As Paul wraps up his letter to the Romans, we see an in-depth look, I believe, at the heart of the servant of God. In this passage, we see, well, I'm going to categorize it as five categories, sorry, five characteristics of the heart of the servant of God. We're going to be looking at the heart of Paul, as well as the heart of, of other believers that he mentions as well. And so my hope as we look at these five characteristics of the heart of the servant of God is that it would be a great example to you, that it would be a great influence, and it would be a great blessing to you, even as it was for me as I studied it this last week. So let's jump right in, starting in verse 23. Our first characteristic of the heart of a servant we see is that the servant of God plans for more serving. Verses 23 and 24, the servant of God plans for more serving. Let me read it for you. It says, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. In this passage, Paul is telling the church in Rome his plan his desires, his goals as he continues in ministry. The first thing we notice is that Paul doesn't plan to stop. But his plan is to continue to serve. Paul's plan is to make a quick visit to Rome on his way to Spain. That's where he wants to go, where he plans to spend more time ministering to that congregation in Spain. And he knows that Rome is, is much more established in the faith in Spain. So that's why he wants to spend most of his time in Spain where he can begin teaching the truths of Christianity. But before he does, he plans to visit Rome to, to receive help from them and to minister to them as well. And it was meant to be a short visit. He says in passing. Because he knows that there are others, and specifically in Spain, there are others who still need to hear the gospel. We see Paul is not done serving. He will not stop. Instead, his plan is to continue and to continue and to continue on serving the Lord. Why would he stop? 
He knows there's still people out there who need to hear of this truth. So would he just stop and keep that truth to himself? No. But his plan is to continue on and to continue on. And I believe that should be the mindset of every Christian. I believe every Christian is called to serve the Lord. And I believe retirement from that calling, that is the calling of serving the Lord, is never the design for the Christian life. We do not retire from serving the Lord. There are only two reasons why the Christian should stop serving the Lord here on earth. Either they die or the Lord has come back. That's it. And until either of those two things happen, Christian, if you're a Christian, you should continue to serve the Lord in some capacity, in one way or another. If you were here and you were still alive, which is most of you, if you are still alive, it is only because God is keeping you alive. And if he's keeping you alive, then it's because God is not done working in you and he's not done working through you. If you are still alive, it is because God still has a purpose for your life. And I'm confident that part of that purpose is to live for his kingdom and to serve him in some way. Otherwise, you would no longer be here and God would have taken you home by now. And even when you are home to be with him, you will be perfectly serving and worshiping him there for all of eternity. But until then, until that time, you were called to serve him here on earth. There's still much work to be done. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. If you are a Christian, and if you are alive today, you are a laborer. So go and harvest. And if the Lord has not returned, then you can be confident that there are still people out there who belong to God who have not yet come to know God. God is still seeking to save people in this world. God is still calling his sheep to himself. Write down John 10, 16. I'll read it. Jesus says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There's still sheep out there who is not yet part of this fold. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, the Lord has not returned yet, which means God is not done calling his sheep to himself. And if there are still people out there who belong in his fold, then our mission, Christian, is not done. And as long as the Lord has not returned, then we, Christian, still have a calling to reach the lost. So will you be a good steward with the mission that God has given you? Will you make the most of the life that God continues to give you each and every day? Do you understand that, Christian? That God is continuing to give you life. And at any day, God, in his perfect wisdom, can say that your purpose in time is over. Any day. In fact, your days are already numbered. And we act as if we deserve to see tomorrow. Because we have seen every day since then. And we've come to expect it. 
And we've come to expect that I will wake up tomorrow morning. We will see tomorrow if God in his grace allows us to see tomorrow. When we wake up, if we wake up tomorrow morning, then we will see, okay, God in his grace has indeed allowed me to see today. At least right now. Maybe I'll die later today. But at least right now, he he has given me a new day. And we will see tomorrow if God still has a purpose for us to see tomorrow. Do you see? As in today, today is today. But if he lets us see tomorrow, then we know that tomorrow, by his grace, he's given us that day. And that he still has a purpose for us tomorrow. Because he's let us see that day. See, Christian, if you live to see another day, and if the Lord has not returned, then you can be confident that your purpose and your mission has not been fulfilled. Because you're still alive. He's still giving you a day to fulfill that purpose. So will you just spend that day that God has specifically given you and use it just to spend on on, on video games and and social media and wasting time when when, when he has given you that specific time and given you that specific life and that specific day to fulfill his purpose and, and fulfill his mission? He's given you breath for that day to fulfill it. Will you... Walk through that purpose that he's given you for that day. Will you recognize that each and every day is a gift by God and it is, it is congested, it is pregnant with purpose. God has given you that day so you can serve him. If you guys live to see tomorrow, God has given you that day so that you can worship him tomorrow. Will you worship him tomorrow? Will you serve him tomorrow? Or will you waste it? Will you give up? Will you be done? If we all make it till next week, then I can say, God just God gave you seven days since last time I saw you. Did you use those seven days for his purpose, for his will, for his glory? Or did you waste it? Did you say, I'm done? Christian, we we do not retire from the calling to serve the Lord. Now, certainly there there are times and seasons in the Christian life that that require you to to serve the Lord in different ways. Yes, sometimes in seasons you have more, sometimes less, and that's okay. A a, a very young Christian who's seven-year-old is going to serve the Lord differently than a 27-year-old single person. And that person might serve different than a 27-year-old married person. And that person may be different than an 87-year-old grandparent. They all may serve in their own different way. But all of them, if they're truly a Christian, are called to serve the Lord in some capacity. You say, well, what about those that have no capacity? Those who have no physical ability, whether it's because of sickness or because of age or physical disability or whatever it might be. I would argue that there is still probably some way in which they're able to serve, even if it's completely behind the scenes. And I would argue that if it's done for the Lord, it's not any less valuable. All you can do is just lay in your bed and pray. Then pray! That's great! The people of God and the kingdom of God need your prayers. So we must not look at others in in, in judgment because... They serve differently than us. We must have grace for one another. 
There are some who, who physically, uh, mentally c- cannot serve in the way that maybe most people can. And that's okay. They may be giving their all. They may be worshiping God. They may have a smaller capacity than you. But they are serving to how God has called them in this stage of their life to serve. But what about you? What about you specifically? What is your capacity to serve? For some, I think you need to be stretched of your capacity. See, there, there's a difference, I think, between capacity and, and discipline. You may very well have a large capacity to serve, but maybe you lack the discipline to do so. Christian, are you serving? Do you have plans to continue serving the Lord? Or are you already ready for retirement? Do you say, you know what, I, I, I put in my time, I'm good. I've done the Christian thing, I've done the Christian duty, I'm good. I encourage you, be planning for what's next. Paul could have said, look, I've, I, I've done a lot in Corinth, I'm good to go. Look, I'm heading to you guys, I'm going to kick back. The other guys got from here, we got other apostles, they got it covered. But no, he continued to make plans to serve the Lord and to spread his word. And don't get me wrong, there's wisdom, there's benefit at times from taking a step back, from from lessening your load, and even from taking a break from serving, yes. Right? A a couple of our staffers are taking a break. Praise God, they need that respite. It's good. Enjoy that. Worship God in that. But that should not be the norm. That should not be where you often live and just saying, well, I'm not serving. The Christians should be seeking to serve the Lord, to use their gifts and to spread his word where it needs to be spread. Is that your plan? Are you planning to do so? Do you have plans to serve God and to minister to others? How so? How are you planning to do so? Second characteristic we see as we look at the heart of the servant is that the servant of God generously and joyfully gives to others. Generously and joyfully gives to others. Verse 25 to 28. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. That's the, aid, the, the saints in Jerusalem. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They ought also to be service of them, their material blessings. Okay, so this is what's going on. Before Paul was to stop in Rome on his way to Spain... He had a plan to go to Jerusalem first to drop off a love offering that had been collected from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia. Now the church of Jerusalem was in need. We see here, I don't think, we, we see the heart of Paul, but I think more than that we see the heart of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The heart of a servant is a heart that is generous and is joyful in their giving. See, they saw a need and they acted. They evidently collected funds. It seems that there was a financial need. And they collected funds to give towards the need of this other church in Jerusalem. The heart of a servant doesn't become aware of a need and then just walk the other way. But instead they walk towards that need. You see? When you see a need in the body of Christ, when you see a need in the lives of others, 
Do you walk towards it? Or do you walk away from it? I understand there are times when you're unable to give help. You're unable to give aid. I understand that. But what about the times when someone is in need and you have the resources? Someone is in need and you have the abilities to address their need. Do you act? Do you have a heart of concern and love for others? Do you have a heart of compassion that moves towards their needs? Or do you wait for others to act instead? Now, I think what's even more significant about this giving is that there is still a lot of animosity between Jewish Christians and and Gentile Christians. And the churches in Macedonia and Achaia were primarily Gentile congregations. And the church in Jerusalem was primarily a Jewish congregation. And I think it's difficult for for us maybe to understand and relate to the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. Even between Jewish and Gentile believers. And we're thinking, oh great, they're Jewish believers. Okay, yeah, go ahead, have my money. right? But that's not what it was. Culturally, we have to understand it. Some Jews and Gentiles hated each other so much, they wouldn't even walk in each other's shadows. If, if a Gentile is walking down the street and the sun's shining, casting the shadow down the Gentile, the Jew will, will make sure he walks all the way around the shadow because that shadow better not cast on, on, on me. No way will I have the shadow of a Gentile on me. Right? That's how much they hated each other. There was significant hatred between these two groups. And yet the gospel says they are one body. They are one family in Christ. And what we see here is this Jewish church in Jerusalem in need. And these Gentile churches in Macedonia and Achaia extend love by generously giving to their need. Why would Gentiles give up their finances for Jews? The Gentiles don't benefit from this. They're just giving their money to a Jewish congregation. Why would you do that? Yes, in fact, it says they were pleased to do so. They did it joyfully. This is unheard of. This is so strange. No. This is the power of the gospel. These Christians in Macedonia and Achaia were changed by the gospel. And one way this was reflected was by their generous and their joyful giving to a congregation of Christians who were not like them. And who, by the culture standpoint, was their enemy. Christian love shows no partiality. It is not exclusive to those who are only like yourself. Is your giving, is your love, is your generosity exclusive only to those who are like you? Only to to those who, who are easy for you to love? Do you show love to the outsider? Do you show love to, to the odd person, the, odd, the, the, the new person at TYG? How can you show love, the love of Christ, to those who are not like you? Can you do that? Now it says in verse 26 that these churches were pleased to make some contribution to the poor. Contribution. And the word for contribution is actually the word koinonia, which maybe you guys, a lot of you know, is typically translated fellowship. But I do think contribution is a good translation here because it fits the context of giving, of contributing to their financial needs by means of a gift. But I think it's helpful for us to understand more of what that word 
the, the weight of it, what's inside of that. Because it's more than just merely just saying, I'm going to Venmo you some money, you Jewish Christian. Here, take some cash. I'm contributing and I'm moving on. It's more than that. In their giving, they are seeking partnership. They are seeking koinonia, fellowship, communion with this church. And I believe part of Paul's desire for bringing this gift to the church in Jerusalem on his way to Rome, on his way to Spain, is to help bring unity between these Gentile churches and this Jewish church. The heart of the servant is the one who gives generously and who gives joyfully, but there's purpose behind it. There's intentionality. It is to extend the love of Christ. It is to respond to the love that God has shown to you and therefore to show it to others. It is to edify and to encourage and to build up the one body in Christ. Can you give generously? Can you give joyfully for the sake of koinonia, for the sake of partnership in the gospel? Whether it be financially, whether it be your time, whether it be your energy, will you give of yourself for the sake of the body? Even if they aren't in your immediate circle of friends. Even if they aren't people that you would normally hang around. Or you even really like. But they are part of the body of Christ. And for the sake of koinonia, for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of partnership, I will love you. And I will sacrifice something of myself for you. Next we see the servant of God is reliant on prayer. Verses 29 through 33. The servant of God is reliant on prayer. Paul is asking them to join him in prayer. In fact, he says, strive together with me in your prayers to God. The word for strive is a very intense word in the Greek. In fact, the typical word would be agonizomai, in which we get the word agonize. Right? You hear that? Agonizomai, agonize or agony. And this word for agonism would be used to describe boxers fighting or, or struggling against each other, right? That's that struggle, that striving he's saying. But the word is not agonizomai. It's actually soon agonizomai. It's an intensified form of the word agonizomai. Why would Paul ask for such intense prayers? He's already taking a strong word and making it even stronger. Why? Because he knows that he needs it. He knows he needs Prayers. He is reliant on prayer. He is reliant on the grace and the power of God. He is reliant on God working in and through him. And so he asks for prayer. That they would strive together with him in prayer. We too must rely on prayer. And we too must be praying for those who are ministers of the gospel. Our words and our service have no effect on any person if God does not choose to act. (laughs) We have nothing. But we rely on him and his grace. And so we pray. We must pray. We must pray that God would act. Pray that God would use you as his servant. Pray that God would use your pastors, that he would use your missionaries for the sake of his gospel. We must be people who rely on prayer and who are active in prayer. Is that you? Are you intensely agonizing in prayer? 
for the sake of ministry. And that's key. Not are you intensely agonizing in prayer that that boy would finally like me. Not that. Are you intensely agonizing in prayer for the sake of ministry, for the sake of others who minister, for the sake of the gospel? Do your prayers even consist of prayers for ministry? Do you even pray for that? Do you pray for your pastors, for your missionaries, for the gospel to go out? Do you strive in those prayers? Is he striving in prayers? It's not just looking in the prayer sheet in the bulletin, glancing over it, shooting up a quick prayer. Okay, God, be with these people. Amen, Jesus. Thank you so much. That's not what Paul had in mind here. But striving in prayer is to agonize, to intensely, genuinely, thoughtfully, specifically pray for others. Are your prayers ministry-minded? Are they gospel-centered? And notice Paul's prayer requests. They're not selfish. They are kingdom-minded. What does he ask for? For protection, and he asked that others would be blessed. He asked for protection from the unbelievers in Judea. What is he talking about? You might remember earlier in Romans. Paul's not a popular figure anymore amongst the Jewish crowd. Okay? A lot of the Jewish people there hated Paul. Remember, he was a traitor to them. Because he was a Jew. A great Jew. And to the non-believing Jew, Paul, who was once persecuting Christians, now Paul has just joined this crazy group of Christians. He, he, he's got cuckoo. And now he, he, he's joined them. He's joined a group of people who are now claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. And so to that, no, he's a traitor. And they hated him because of it. And so Paul is asking for protection from those unbelievers so that he would not be hindered in his ministry. But instead, what? That he would continue in his ministry, just like what we started tonight. He plans to continue, even though there's a threat. It's not a selfish prayer. His motivation, his purpose, is for the sake of what? For the sake of his Instagram followers? No. For the sake of the gospel. And not only does he ask for protection, but he asks that the gift that he's bringing to the church in Jerusalem would be accepted. Right? He asks that this gift that I'm picking up from, from Macedonia and Achaia, as I give this to the church in Jerusalem, he's asking to be blessed. Because he knows it could be rejected by that Jewish church. He knows it could be seen. Oh, maybe this is a bribe from the Gentiles. Oh, they, they, those Gentiles, they got something up their sleeve. No, 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 we're not taking this. No, we don't need your Gentile money. His prayer is that they would receive it. That it would be beneficial, that it would bring unity, that it would bring fellowship between the Jewish and the Gentile churches. You see, again, it's not selfish, but it's prayers for the purpose of the edification and the unification of the body of Christ. Christian, are you a servant of prayer? Are you dedicated to prayer? Do you strive in prayer? Do you pray for the purpose of the gospel, for the purpose of ministry, for the purpose of the edification and the upbuilding of the body? Is that your prayers? Next, as we get into chapter 16, we see the servant of God serves in diversity and unity, verses 1 through 15. The servant of God serves in diversity and unity. Now, in this passage, these 15 verses, 
we see a lot of names. And my goodness, a lot of names that I butchered and in my opinion are difficult to pronounce. But we move on. I like some of them. Mary. Amen. Give me more of those. I like that one. Okay. Good job, Mary. Now, tonight, we're not going to look in the specifics of each person. We could, and I encourage you, if you want to do that study, you can find a little bit more of some of these people. Uh, we're not going to look at their background and how they serve and all this stuff. No, instead, I want us to take a step back and notice two things in this passage. That servants of God are diverse and servants of God are united. Servants of God are diverse. Paul names 24 individuals by name, all of whom have their own gifts, their own strengths, their own weaknesses, their own quirks, are used in their own ways. God used each of them in his own ways in which he ordained according to his own purposes. And within these 24 people, interestingly enough, seven of them are women. In fact, the first person he lists and the one who Paul spends the most time is Phoebe. I told you I'm not going to get into specifics, but I will a little bit with Phoebe. She evidently was very helpful to Paul in his ministry. In fact, many believe that she's the one who physically carried the letter to the church in Rome. She's the one who was with Paul, and he wrote it and said, Here, Phoebe, take this to the church. It's likely that she did it by herself. It's likely that it could have been very dangerous. I mean, what a responsibility! One scholar put it this way, said, although God inspired no woman to write a part of scripture, he used Phoebe to transport the first copy of this marvelous letter, which is one of the bedrocks of New Testament theology. Yes! Right? Let's go, Phoebe! Man, woman, young, old, black, white, rich, poor, I don't care. What I want you to understand is that God can and God does and God will use you, Christian. For the advancement of his kingdom and for the glory of his name. <laughs> you see that? He's not looking for a specific kind of person. And, 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 and this type of person only and that's it. No, he's looking for a servant. Will you be a servant? Christian, are you a servant? Will you be used by him? Will you be active? Will you serve? Phoebe, can you take this letter? Oh, I gotta binge watch this new show on Netflix. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> body of Christ is beautifully diverse. And we are called to serve God in the capacity in which he has called us to do so. I love the line from, uh, what's it called? From, from all I have is Christ. The line that says, Oh, Father, use my ransom life, what? In any way you choose. Use my ransom life in any way you choose. Are you willing to serve God? In any way he chooses? What if he chooses for you to be a missionary overseas? What if he chooses for you to be a pastor? What if he chooses for you to share the gospel with your Muslim neighbor? What if he chooses for you to go talk to the weird kid in the corner? That used to be Richard. Where's Richard? Remember? Remember that? Yeah. We'll talk to you. Now you're married. See? Now, I'm not suggesting that's how you... Uh, anyways. How is God calling you to serve him today? And will you walk in it? Will you be faithful to your calling? In whatever unique way God has called you to serve 
and all the diversity we have, he has in the body of Christ, will you respond to that calling? So servants of God are diverse. Servants of God are also united. They're united. And I think these two aspects are beautifully intertwined because to serve God is to be diverse and yet be united at the same time. Sometimes diversity causes disunity. I mean, look at the world around us. You have groups of people, and the more diverse they are, oftentimes they, they, they have issues, right? And so we see, we, we start grouping ourselves and people that are like us to bring less diversity. This should never be the case for the people of God. Instead, servants of God ought to be united, even through their diversity. In this unity, all believers, while serving in different capacities, are united as they strive together at the same goal. What is that goal? All Christians are united in seeking to glorify God. We have one mission. We have one kingdom serving and glorifying one God. And this unity, though, is not simply just an agreement of this goal and this purpose, but it goes much deeper than that. This unity is a unity of hearts. This unity is a deep love and care and concern for one another as we strive towards that same goal. Do you see that? Do you have that? Do you have a deep love and care and concern for such a diverse group of people? I mean, the, the tendency is, is to love Christians that are like us, is it not? Naturally, I think that's the tendency. To care for those who have the same interests as us, who, who share a lot of in common with us, who are, who are more or less like us. And these are the ones that we care for and we love. And so naturally we just gravitate and we favor those who are like us. But let us not be exclusive to those who are only like us. Let, let us show no partiality and let us love all who are in the body of Christ. I mean, notice Paul's love for each of these people. You have to remember, he didn't have email. He didn't even have mail. Just drop the E. He still didn't have it. He had never been in this church yet. And yet he names 24 people at the church. How do you even know these people? He sends his love to them. And he's united with them through the blood of Christ and the partnership of the ministry of the gospel. Like, can you even name 24 people who you partner in ministry with? Or who you are thankful for of ministry towards you. Can you name 24 people? Let alone 24 people who are in another city at a different church that you've never gotten to visit and you can't talk to them electronically? What does your circle of believers look like? Your inner circle. You know what I mean? What do your circle of believers look like? And we have a massive body of believers. I'm not saying within this church, Grace Bible Church in Pleasant Hill. I'm talking about the church. The church. Is your circle just you and your few friends? Or do you know and do you partner with and do you care for and do you pray for the church? Believers of all kinds of races, all kinds of ages, all kinds of backgrounds. Or is it just you and your two friends? Serve in diversity and serve in unity. Lastly, the servant of God loves the people of God. The servant of God loves the people of God. Verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. 
Now, most of you should and probably do know that greeting one another with a holy kiss was not a romantic act, okay? He wasn't saying, oh, it was smoochy, smoochy. Culturally, they would often kiss on the forehead or the cheek, not on the lips. And it would often be done by relatives or close friends. That's who they would kiss. They would greet each other with a holy kiss, relatives or close friends. The Christian family is indeed closer than relatives or close friends. This greeting, culturally, it showed a kindness and a love and concern that you would have for someone that is close to you, like a relative or a close friend. And Paul is urging Christians to show that same kind of love to one another. As in to not have a superficial, the surface level love for other Christians, but instead to have a real and a deep and a genuine love for one another. That like a close friend, that like a relative. So he says, greet them with a holy kiss. You see the emphasis that Paul's putting on love here? We must not miss it. We must not forget it. Paul loved people, not just doctrine. Sometimes we think Paul, oh, he's, he's a doctrine guy. Yeah, he's my guy. No, he loved people. I think especially in this book, maybe like in Romans, we get carried away with the doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Ugh. And it's good. But we must not miss the importance of love. One commentator, he pointed out the fact that while this letter is it's so beefy, right? It's so heavy. It's so rich in doctrine. It ends in such a beautiful way with an emphasis of loving others. Really, love has been intertwined through much of this letter already. But we see it especially here as Paul greets all of these different people, all 24 people. Love for one another cannot be forgotten. Do not become so puffed up with head knowledge that you have no heart for others. Sadly, I see this happen a lot, especially in our kinds of circles where I believe we hold to strong and true doctrine. Doctrine is important. Don't get me wrong. Doctrine is important. But doctrine without love is useless. In fact, Paul will go as far as to say, 1 Corinthians 13, 3, if I give all if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, right? Like I give up everything, even my life, I give it away, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Be careful of becoming so heavy in the head that you become so weak in the heart. Allow your right doctrine to create in you a greater love for God and a greater love for others. Understand this. It, if your doctrine is causing you to love others less, then you are misapplying that doctrine. The servant of God loves the people of God. Do you love the people of God? How do you know? How do you do that? How do you practically show that? How do you tangibly show that you love the people of God? I'm not saying you should start kissing one another and saying, I'm just being biblical. Don't do that. But do you love the people of God as you would a close friend, as you would a relative? You ought to. The blood of Christ is a deeper bond than any other blood. Love one another. Love the people of God. Well, as Paul wraps up his letter to the church, it may seem like he's just taking care of business. Like he's he's saying administrative stuff that he needs to say. But all of it is the inspired word of God, which is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
And while there are probably many things we could have learned from this passage, things I didn't even grab, I didn't even point out, my hope is that you were at least able to see the heart of the servant of God. That in his closing remarks, we're able to see that the servant of God plans for more serving. That the servant of God generously and joyfully gives to others. That the servant of God is reliant on prayer. That the servant of God serves in diversity and unity. That the servant of God loves the people of God. If I ask you, are you a servant of God? Are you a servant of God? And if you are a Christian, then you are a servant of God. You are. So serve. Serve in these ways. Serve with these characteristics. And remember, your serving does not make you closer to God. Your serving does not make God like you more. Your serving does not secure you more in his love. Because all of that, his closeness, his love, his security is already infinite, perfect, and unchangeable. We serve God because we love God. Because he first loved us. And so now, what else would I do in my life than to serve him? Do you desire to serve God? Ask for the Spirit to reveal in yourself the ways in which you can better be serving and worshiping God with your life. Now, some of you are not a servant of God. Some of you are not in the faith. Some of you are not a Christian. And you serving will not change that. You doing, quote, Christian things, you living in obedience, you showing love and mercy to other people will not change your relationship with God. What you need is not to serve more so that God may be happier with you or that God may now choose to love you. No, what you need is Christ. What you need is to look at the servant of God who made himself nothing talking about Jesus, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus showed the ultimate heart of a servant, and he showed the ultimate act of love, and he gave the ultimate sacrifice of all himself. He died so that we may live. My prayer is that every single one of you, by his grace, would place your faith fully in Jesus Christ and you will repent of your sins and be saved. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our model. And so if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then look to Him as your prime example. Serve and love others as Christ has served and loved you. Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you For Christ is our example of the servant. Thank you for his finished work on the cross that we may be saved, we may be forgiven, that we may be brought near. Lord, I pray that we would be humbled by your love, God, that we would seek to serve others in the same way. I pray that we would live our lives for your glory each and every day that you've given us, every breath that you give us, Lord, that we would not use it to speak sin, but instead that we would use it to bring you praise. Lord, I pray even as we discuss these things, that we bring glory to you. Work in our hearts, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we are a little.